turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Many people disclose that they have been subjected to no resuscitation orders. These no resuscitation orders have been placed on people without their knowledge or their consent. In a perfect world, I would ideally support voluntary euthanasia. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. That is, if we lived in a society in which disabled people had genuine equality. Hi, welcome back to the 180 Cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman. I have made it a point since the early days of this podcast to face the most challenging and controversial topics head on. No apologies, no beating around the bush. I've been very frank about it. And over the years, I've written many, many articles related to human death. I I always like to say that I write on the most depressing topics imaginable. Um, Abortion, assisted suicide, the regular kind of suicide. And we've done several episodes, of course. If you've been listening to this podcast, we did several episodes um, about abortion on this podcast. And I care about life and death issues. And even if you, as a listener, disagree with my opinions, you should care too. And I imagine that you do care. And that's why you're listening to this episode right now. That said, the question of assisted suicide is edging further and further into the public consciousness, not just in America, but across the world. Euthanasia is legal in in seven U.S. states already, five different countries, including Belgium and the Netherlands and Canada, and multiple states have been considering more legislation like that. In Canada, I mean, just four years ago, they legalized it. And, And also, now we're looking at New Zealand voters, it looks like we'll decide on an assisted suicide law via referendum this year in their general election. So they're facing a really big decision, literally a a life and death decision, not for themselves personally, but that's going to affect life and death issues for many, many other people across the country and over many years. So, I mean, there's, there's so many issues that, that sprout from this and, and it is a, it is a, breeding ground for many, many ethical questions. At the heart of it, on one side, we have people who say this is about autonomy and this is about dignity. And you need to allow people to obtain aid in ending their own lives so that they can not just end their suffering, but they can have control and autonomy over when they leave this world. And on the other side, we say, there's people who say, well, life is sacred. And if you allow this, 
where does it stop? Um, does it stop with minors? Does it does it stop with people who are terminally ill, or do we extend that to people who are merely disabled? These are really big questions, and so I am so glad that on this podcast we can have somebody to talk about this. And he's from New Zealand. My next guest is a current member of the Green Party in New Zealand and a former Green Party List MP candidate. He's also a freelance writer like myself and a disability rights advocate and community networker for Disabled Persons Assembly in New Zealand, Chris Ford. Thank you for coming on the 180 cast. Kira, greetings from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Excellent. Okay, before we get started, don't forget, of course, that you can subscribe to the podcast to stay updated. Just click the little button in whatever podcast catcher that you are listening in. We do release a new interview episode every other Friday with in the weeks in between. I do like two solo episodes where I talk about the news and the issues of our day. And I analyze the highlights from these interviews to see what we can find out about how people change their minds. And just generally seek to bring some moral and logical clarity out of all the cultural confusion. And so, you know what, if you find this episode interesting, by the time you get to the end, please do not hesitate to share it with a friend or maybe like a frenemy that you have online via Facebook or Twitter that you may have been arguing with on this very question. Because I know that one of you out there has been doing exactly that. Okay, now we can begin. So, Chris, you used to support physician-assisted suicide for, for many years, right? In a very limited way, yes, I did. That is correct. Right. So take me back to that mindset. Why did you believe what you believed? Why I believed what I believed at that time was that I believed that it was possible for the human rights of disabled people, of which I am one, to be respected in respect of euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, and on the other, also to have the rights of people with terminal illness respected as well. I believe succinctly that there could be a very well delineated means of, say, for example, having terminally ill people come under euthanasia legislation or voluntary euthanasia legislation, thereby excluding many disabled people from it. Since then, though, I've come to hear about and learn about the fact that there are many, many different ways of interpreting legislation. And in that sense, I've become particularly aware of the fact that, for example, the intersection between disability and, for example, terminal illness can be often confused, blended together, fused, whatever term you would seek to describe it as. So therefore, there is that, that intersection is just not possible to establish. Okay, so what was there a particular moment where you realized that, oh, maybe this is not like you said, this this is not a, a clear line that it's actually kind of fuzzy. Was there was there like any conversations that you had or like what kind of things were you reading or listening to that helped you come to this conclusion? Well, I was reading a number of things, but one particular event stood out. 
I was online one night. I happened to come across a Facebook posting from a disability group in Palmerston North. There was a meeting of this group, and it was mainly comprised of people with learning disability. I think from memory, it was a people-first group in the North Island. What they came across was that they were discussing, amongst other things, health issues as they impacted on disabled people, and particularly the hospitalisation experiences of people with learning disability, in other words, people with intellectual disability. <laughs> what was found in that case was that many people disclosed that they knew of people or had been subjected to themselves no resuscitation orders. These no resuscitation orders had been placed on people without their knowledge or their consent. Now, some people and I have had one very prominent pro-voluntary euthanasia advocate in New Zealand say to me, oh, this issue should be taken to our Health and Disability Commissioner, which considers all complaints in relation to our healthcare and disability systems. However, what I think that this advocate, this certain advocate, really didn't realise is that disabled people have often been the subject of medically driven or derived euthanasia, in particular since the days of eugenics and even further back than that. In classical Greece, for example, it, and Plato and Aristotle, were amongst others the champions of this there was the practice of infanticide right. of disabled people so it goes all the way back then so people often don't understand that disabled people particularly once they exist outside of the womb once they are born are often judged and characterized and are often or have often been viewed as the subject of medical infantilization, all of that. And so, therefore, our lives have often been placed at risk, as was the case, for example, for German disabled people and disabled people that occupied Europe under the Nazis. Right. So you're saying that this is not a new hypothetical that that we're talking about, that we're considering as to how disabled people will be treated with these assisted suicide laws. You're saying we already know from history, even thousands of years ago, that this is how, that this is what it leads to. Absolutely. Even if it starts out as voluntary. I think that the slippery slope argument is often dismissed, but in many jurisdictions which have passed euthanasia laws, there has often been a very slow and gradual liberalisation expansion of euthanasia legislation. Now, in a perfect world, I would ideally support voluntary euthanasia. That is, if we lived in a society in which disabled people had genuine equality, we're able to feel the hand of prosperity upon ourselves. If we were able to enjoy participation, full participation in citizenship and human rights. However, in the current world, we really don't enjoy those rights. So therefore, I come at the issue not from a spiritual point of view, although I do respect people who hold 
into euthanasia views from a spiritual point of view, but I come at it from a human rights angle, as do groups such as Not Dead Yet. So going back to that group uh, of people with learning disabilities, and you learned about these these um, these DNR orders. Okay, first of all, it, are you saying that that's legal to just put a DNR on somebody without them knowing? And it is. Mm, it's not legal here in New Zealand, and I think yes, a law was broken in that respect, and yes, they should complain to the relevant health and disability authorities. However, there is the issue, particularly under our proposed legislation, which is, as you say, being put to referenda, that, for example, that the Health and Disability Commissioner will also be able to consider complaints of people who feel that they've had their right to euthanasia withdrawn or whatever for no valid reason. So you've, you'll have those sorts of conflicts come up. I think, though, that really looking at it this way is that, as I, as I said earlier, that basically it's history that has dictated the fact that disabled people have been subjected to euthanasia are more likely to think of taking it up as an option because they have a lack of supports, they don't feel a part of their communities, they become subject to pressure from well-meaning of course families and friends to consider it and there's no real way even though our legislation states that there will be checks done to ensure that people aren't pressured into it there is no complete way to ascertain that somebody has not been pressurized into taking the step of voluntary euthanasia right so once you learned, like I said, from these these um, this group with learning disabilities, once you sort of heard them talking about this, was that like your aha moment where it clicked? Yes. Like, were you it, already reading this kind of stuff and like reading about history or did you go into that from there? I was reading about the history. I was also in conversation with people who were, who are good disability rights activists in Aotearoa, New Zealand, who I respected, who otherwise share the same progressive socially liberal views as I do on many issues, such as the right to abortion and reproductive choice, for example, but yet are concerned when it comes to euthanasia and in particular its ability to disadvantage disabled people. Mm and to, to impact on our rights. When did you come out publicly saying that you've changed your mind about this? I came out publicly on a website, a news website in New Zealand known as Newsroom. I chose to come out on that site as given that I'm a freelance writer, I deployed the written word as a means of announcing my change of view on this issue some months before, however, I had written that, as I had stated earlier, that I was in favour of voluntary euthanasia with very strict guidelines and legislation in place. However, I, as I've outlined to you, I 
became aware of the other side of the argument that it is not completely permissible, for example, to ascertain fully that a person isn't being subjected to pressure from others around them or that they may be clinically depressed. There are many people who, for example, acquire disability in later life through or impairment, through accident or whatever, they go through a natural depressive phase. You'll often hear people saying, disabled people saying that they want to end their lives, but people don't often ask the real questions why. They don't. Also, I just feel that mental health support isn't as readily available to disabled people or as responsive to the needs of disabled people as it is to people without disability. Right. So what so you seem to be you seem to have been in the place where I think probably a lot of informed sort of thinking individuals are on this issue where you were like, I support it, given very clear lines that it has to be specific it has to be you know restricted so that people with disabilities aren't affected by this and so you seem to be in a good position to talk to those people in particular about why that's not the case because that's that seems to be a hard position to to sort of jostle somebody out of because that seems like the reasonable thing, right? Because we all want to allow people to have control over their own destinies. You know, especially in Western societies, we're very into the individual and the individual rights and making their own decisions. So what what are the arguments, what are the best arguments for the position that you used to hold? And then what are the best arguments against it because i know that there are people listening to this podcast who hold the position that you used to hold absolutely i can see that there is a real conflict and paradox in all of the arguments around euthanasia it's a very gray subject it isn't black and white as many people seem to think that it is as much as is the case for any other moral issue such as abortion for example so I guess the best arguments would be I, in terms of autonomy and so forth when you're talking about the issues around why voluntary euthanasia might be a good idea, especially for those people who are in the last phase of a terminal illness, for example. However, the validity of that argument, as I pointed out, seems to collapse when you also talk about the wider issues that impact on individual autonomy and dignity and people's ability to exercise that and to project dignity. I take, for example, the view that disabled people are disabled by the society in which we live in. It's the social model of disability. So, therefore, disabled people are subjected to the very negative, stereotypical attitudes that inform public perception and thinking, popular attitudes towards disabled people, such as, for example, would people date non-disabled people, date disabled people, would non-disabled people hire disabled people in their workplaces? That often doesn't happen. 
So therefore, you're subjected, as I'm subjected as a disabled person, to those sorts of negative vibes, as it were, from day to day. And they affect my ability, and they affect the ability of other disabled people to exercise autonomy in particular. For example, having a choice of person to come and support you is quite important when selecting somebody to provide disability supports. But that can be constrained if there's very little money. If there's nobody for any disability support to be provided, whatever, particularly to a person who needs that support at the level of, say, providing personal cares, toileting, showering, that can really impact a person's life and can really narrow their choices, their dignity, their autonomy. And so, therefore, in those situations, people, disabled people may think, oh, well, it's a, you know, it might be a good idea to have medical assistance to terminate my life because I just don't feel like I could live like this. Whereas if they, if people had good supports, good funding for that support from the get-go, then that really widens a person's choices. It really impacts on their ability to live a dignified life and a life where they feel included as a citizen rather than as a subject. Right. So you, so it seems to be like a tipping point, right? Like, depending on how you decide this, if you decide no, it seems like the public would then become more in favor of providing more support for disabled people and change, generally changing the culture to be stronger and more supportive and more accommodating versus if you go the other way, it seems like it's easier to just fall into, well, I mean, your your friend over here utilized the law to die. You know, why don't why don't you do that too? Mm, that's <laughs> it. It's the social expectations, societal expectations would be changed if we had voluntary euthanasia available. And I do know that in Australia, which is a country which is our closest neighbour, that two states have now passed voluntary euthanasia laws and we'll be watching the impact of those very closely on the anti-side, of course. And they are in the states of Victoria and Western Australia, so far as I know. So if we do elect in New Zealand to go down that path, it will be interesting to see whether the perceptions of disability change or not for the worse, which is what I fear. And what has indeed happened in such places, jurisdictions as the Netherlands and Belgium, where voluntary euthanasia has been widely practised for the last two decades or more. Yeah, even in Oregon, Oregon has had it, the state of Oregon has had it legalised since yes. 1998. Yes, and it would be quite interesting to see whether public attitudes have shifted in that state alone, because wherever you, there is that availability, then there is that risk that the stereotypes around disability are just simply reinforced that all disabled people live miserable lives, whereas that is not the case. In particular, if society provides the supports that we need, removes the barriers to our participation, those are the two main things that would ultimately 
affect how disabled people view themselves and in turn how non-disabled people view us. Yeah. The anecdotal evidence, at least from people who suffer from um, terminal illnesses, even more long-term terminal illnesses, seems to be like from California, for instance, that it, it, it did affect them like immediately. I think in California, they legalized in, I think it was 2015, and that it affected them almost immediately. Like the whole, the whole attitude in the room in terms of like group support shifted and things became much more much more depressed and people thinking, well, like maybe, maybe I shouldn't be a burden on my family any longer. Maybe it's time to call it quits. You know, why do I keep doing this versus them all being supportive of each other um, and encouraging each other to live the best life that they can while, while they still have it. So I'm not sure on the, the disability front, specifically but i know that on that side on the terminal illness side it definitely changed things and even uh, you know insurance companies saying yeah you can't that you know somewhat experimental expensive chemotherapy drug yeah we're not we're not going to let you have that but here's a you know you can have assisted suicide pills for a buck 25 absolutely because that's neoliberalism writ large. This is why I'm also arguing from a progressive standpoint on the progressive left, the progressive democratic left, that really euthanasia is just another, voluntary euthanasia is just another means of reducing healthcare costs, particularly in systems like New Zealand's, which are largely publicly funded, which is a good thing, of course. However, in places such as the United States, which with a largely privatised public health system, private health system, you'll probably get those pressures a lot more. And ditto in Canada, which has legalised voluntary euthanasia through court decision virtually. Really, it's about also the underlying argument would be that, of course, it's cheaper for someone who needs longer-term support um, to, you know, exit the system, and this is one way that you do it. One thing that struck me was, and another thing that really shaped my thinking, was a story that I read in a Canadian media outlet about a, a Canadian man in the one of the provincial health systems in Canada who was offered the option of voluntary euthanasia but he wasn't offered any additional support. So the option that was put to him was voluntary euthanasia or nothing. So he actually is t taking, I think, his provincial government or the local health system to court as well as the federal government. That will be quite interesting because there are also cases, as I understand it, before the Canadian courts calling for that country to extend voluntary euthanasia. So what, where I come from is that in a world which is really adopted writ large neoliberal um, economic and social policies, it will really impact on people who are already marginalised, such as older people, disabled people, to take that option instead of fighting for and receiving what is our due, which is extended support so that we can live more fulfilling and equal lives. I found this quote from 
uh, Derek Humphrey, who's the founder of the Hemlock Society, which is now Compassion and Choices. And he said that there's like this unspoken argument that assisted suicide is going to gain traction because the realities of the increasing cost of healthcare in an aging society, because in the final analysis, economics, not the quest for broadened individual liberties or increased autonomy, it will drive assisted suicide to the plateau of acceptable practice. In other mm. words, he's saying this is the defining issue. When it really comes down to it, you strip everything else away. This is about economics. Yes. What's cheaper? Mm. And and I look at that and I'm like, that's so cold. Like, and I come from like the opposite side of where you are. I'm I'm not progressive at all. Like, I'm very pro free markets. And I look at that and I think it it could happen in either sense, right? It could happen in 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 countries that have very socialized systems and countries that have more f free market systems where depending on the culture, if the, y you know, that can be the deciding factor is, well, is it, is it cheaper? Cause if there's nothing else anchoring you, right. If there's, there's no other ideas about, um, you know, about, like you said, like protecting and supporting people who are disabled or, or general, even spiritual ideas about the sanctity of life or things like that. Well, what else do you have? It's really just economics, right? Yes, I guess you could look at it that way. I think it's we come from opposite, diametrically opposed philosophical positions on the issue of free markets or whatever, but mm -hmm. how in the role of the state. But at the end of the day, where I think that you and I, I guess, converge, uh, I dare say, is that there are there is a cross both socialized, as you call it, and privatized, free market driven health systems, there is still this overarching trend towards voluntary euthanasia. And what I'd like to get your listeners to, on both sides of the argument, to really, and on both sides of the political divide, to really listen to, is about how the economic and social, political and institutional structures of any given society can drive people's choices or restrict those choices and to really, really think about that in respect of the debate around euthanasia. As I said earlier, I admit that the area is really grey. It's not totally black and white, but in such situations as for example, is the referendum that we're facing in New Zealand. We've got a really stark black and white choice, whether we accept or whether we reject. At the moment in New Zealand, the polls are showing that there is a around a 70% or 60% majority in favour. Our general election is in the referendum are due on the 19th of September. But I do note that there is a slow, very slow though, change in the polls towards a greater number of people saying no, but it's very small swing towards the no's at this stage, while still a preponderant majority are saying yes. But I expect that the numbers will narrow. So, it, But I guess I say again that what will drive our referendum choices this year will be the wider political, economic, social and cultural context which inform the debate. Yeah, it is the wider, you know, 
it is the the wider context. In fact, I was reading one advocate was saying that just based off of cases that we've already seen about people providing reasons about why they want to be euthanized, they I mean things as as little as just incontinence, just or 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 losing their their eyesight, just like natural things, or mm. losing their hearing, natural parts of of getting older, even. And this advocate was saying, death, death with dignity, or you know, death before natural death. It, it doesn't. It really seems like death before disability. Yes, that's right. People are frightened of disability because of the medicalized and charitableized notion or charitable notions of disability have informed public discourse and people see it from a negative standpoint. Whereas disability can be a positive lived experience. Yes, disabled people do, as I've said before, go through downtimes, particularly if they're in a process of adjustment. And also people just normally, if they're grieving over a lost relative or whatever, disabled people are just the same. We experience the same thoughts, feelings and emotions. However, what the public sees or perceives, or the majority of the public, is that disabled people live very narrow, very dull, very boring, very negative, unhappy lives. Whereas really that isn't the case. We live as diverse a life as, or lives as do any other human beings. I think that's quite important to get across. Yet that message hasn't really reached the majority. It is starting to. But at the moment, we're still in a place where, as disabled people, that we're not seen as equals to the non-disabled majority. Yeah. I think this kind of takes us to an existential place, though, because it seems like these people who, you know, like in the Netherlands, like the numbers have just been climbing and climbing and climbing. And like in Canada, the numbers have like quadrupled in the last five years or something like that like it it, it's really staggering but this idea that people a lot of people want to be euthanized before these quote-unquote terrible things happen to them like you know being so reliant on other people for their physical needs it's like what else are you what else are you living for right it seems Mm. like there's a there's a deeper question there of do you think that your physical autonomy is all that there is to life? Um, you know, like where's your family? Do you, do you have grandchildren? Do you have nieces and nephews? Do you have a church family? Do you, you know, are there other things that you're involved in like causes that you're pushing for? Like what else are you living for? And it seems like, and I've talked about this in like radically different contexts, but there's there's like this crisis of meaning in western civilization and if you strip away if you strip away your your physical autonomy and you strip away all of the distractions like your you know all of your apps on your smartphone and and all of your streaming services and you take away the tv and things like that what are you left with yeah that's right it's one of those things that if you strip everything away, it's it just comes down to 
what matters to, to people at the end of the day? And but but I guess I come back again to the fact that for me, that it's governed by what is around us. What what factors? What are the economic, social, political, and cultural factors that govern our society? That govern the way we we perceive disability or aging or whatever. I think that yes, it's it's. As I said earlier, it would be fine to have, for example, end of life choice if there were, if there were actually were, if we actually lived in a more equitable and just society. But the reality is, we currently don't have that, and and this debate is taking place within that context that we live in a predominantly neoliberal society, and so therefore. People's choices are informed by the availability of social supports or the lack thereof. And so it is the lack thereof that I think is driving the debate, at least within the Western context. And as well as that, there are those traditional historical cultural factors as well that I pointed out earlier around the perception that disabled people are better off dead. Yeah, and maybe a psychological factor as well, because we know that regular suicides uh, are a a social contagion. They often happen in clumps, like in in high schools and and, and other sort of peer groups. And it it seems like this is happening the same way too, right? Like there's a psychological... There's a psychological aspect to it as well, and I'm wondering if voters are considering that as well, because um, it seems like you know voters we tend to to idealize things, and in a perfect world, this is what would happen. And when we look at laws, you're like, yeah, that sounds good. It's going to yes. work out exactly <laughs> like it is on paper, but it's not. How do you feel about the way that that voters are are being informed? Um, in in New Zealand, do you feel like they're getting the information that they're that they need? And if and if if they are, is that enough to convince them? Well, I think that really it's one side of the debate that has long dominated, and that's been in this country, the pro euthanasia camp. And before I became exposed to some of the arguments of the anti euthanasia camp, I just really really wondered what the sort of other arguments were but i think having disability identified with that argument with the anti-argument sort of swung up for me as well as the human rights aspect to it i think that we're not being well served in new zealand i'm just hopeful that the electoral authorities will adhere to their promise to distribute balanced information to voters before the day itself because that will be complemented by what is likely to be a very vigorous debate in our media. And the one other thing, too, that this debate is taking place in the context of in New Zealand is that New Zealand has the highest rate of, one of the highest, if not the highest rate of suicides, particularly for younger people in the OECD and in the Western world. Even wow. perhaps, yes, outstripping the United States in terms of the number of younger people who commit suicide. It particularly impacts on communities, ethnic communities, such as Māori communities, which are our Indigenous people, as well as Pacific people. The 
immigrants and the sons and daughters and descendants of those immigrants who come to New Zealand to make Aotearoa their home. There's also, as well as that, the fact that the government has invested more, well, this current government led by Labour Party, which came to power in 2017, is committed to spending more on mental health. So you've got, on the one hand, the story about the government spending more on mental health, which is good, but on, but also to the contrary, you've got the the message going out as well that it's okay to voluntarily euthanize yourself if you are a person, excuse me, who has a terminal illness. So yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those contradictions in terms. So that's the context that the debate has taken place in within New Zealand. Yeah, it is quite the contradiction. I also heard that um, California wants to make their state a, a no-kill state in terms of um, rescue animals or um, what do you call it? You know, the animals that go to the the humane shelters. Yes, um, the pound, and they want to they want to get to a place where none of those animals are are euthanized. But at the same time. They also just like stripped an amendment from their laws that says, actually, if you're encouraging, you you can't encourage somebody to commit suicide. But if you encourage them to commit suicide in accordance with our with our uh, assisted dying law, then it's okay. Yeah, that's it. And you're like, what? It is. It is one of those things, isn't it? That it is contradict. There are these contradiction in terms. As I said before, it it just comes down to the context. If we were living in a society in which everybody had prosperity, everybody had equal choices, the ideal society, then we would, then I think that uh, assisted, the choice to have assisted dying would be permissible. But as I said, we don't. And also the same would apply in California. And you've got over there the fact that, as you say, there is this law which says, yes, we, we don't want to have animals killed, but what about human beings? Do we take care of those people who are vulnerable, who are facing death, who are disabled, who are older, and making sure that they've got the right supports in place and the right choices to, to make around that, that they can make effective choices. So what's your, your elevator pitch to someone who believes, as we talked about before, in that, in that perfect world where it, it's all going to work out okay as long as we have these, these uh, clearly drawn lines as to what's permissible and, and what's not? Um, what, what's your elevator pitch to them to sort of get them to change their mind? Well, I think that they would have to put themselves in the situation that tomorrow, and it could happen to any one of us, that we could discover that we're terminally ill. And that would be, of course, naturally devastating. Then we have to think, though, that there will be a period where a person will become depressed and naturally go through a grieving cycle, a natural grieving cycle that may last for X how long. And also we don't know when we're going to die, obviously. 
And so if a person was given a terminal diagnosis, they're often told it could be six months, six weeks, a day even. But a person could either outlive that diagnosis or die the following the day following that diagnosis. We just don't know. So therefore, a terminal diagnosis is only as good as the physician who's given that. So mm -hmm. therefore, it's really around, for example, just thinking about that and thinking about the people around them and being given the opportunity to say, hopefully a longer goodbye and and to die naturally. I do realise that as a person approaches natural death, that often that process can be sped up, sped up through an agreement to turn off a respirator or life support system or right. to have an extra infusion of drugs, but that is permitted under current legislation, for example, in New Zealand. But it shouldn't be, but that should be really, that, that should be to the very, very end with ours to go or whatever. But, but having that choice given to a person who's just found out that they're about to die is, I think, very tricky, given it also, too, that over time, as I've said, the law could become more liberalised and more people could fall into its, into its ambit. And that could mean that people such as myself, who don't have a terminal condition, but who live with a lifelong impairment, such as cerebral palsy, could slowly be pulled in into that. Also, as I said earlier, another thing to consider is that often the difference between disability and terminal illness can be rather blurred. And so, therefore, it's there are people who may live for years with what ultimately might be a terminal condition, such as, for example, muscular dystrophy or whatever, but yet they may live a good quality of life until the very end. That's that's the thing. So are we, you know, because the, because choice, is, as I've said, it's, it's influenced by the attitudes of people around us and by the society around us. And at the moment, our society is not as readily accepting of disability as it is of other groups. So that's the context that this debate is taking place in. Yeah, that's helpful. I always love asking that question and getting the answers because it's never quite exactly what I would have would have done, you know, because I'm I'm just a writer and I haven't, you know, been in your shoes, but I would have, you know, been like, here are the facts, here are the statistics, and you're like Put yourself in their shoes. That's right. That's <laughs> you know that's why I do this podcast because yeah, all, you know the things that people who have changed their minds the the things that they say and that they bring to the conversation are so valuable and so I really appreciate you taking all this this time to have this discussion with me. Um, yeah, thank you so much for for joining me today. I think it's been really constructive. Most certainly, it's been a pleasure to be on your podcast, and I just hope that. The people who listen to this podcast will, in particular, if they're from New Zealand or elsewhere in the world where this topic is being considered, is that they approach the arguments, the debate constructively. It can be emotive. It will be emotive. I understand that. But it's time to also step back and listen to each other and to make a decision based 
on the best available balanced information. Where can uh, listeners sort of keep up with what you're up to? Okay, well, I, given that I work two jobs now, it's <laughs> not day and age. I'm not as busy as a freelance writer in terms of my freelance writing as I used to be. However, when when articles do pop up, I'm just hopeful that they will be published by Newsroom New Zealand, which is a very good website. And also I have my own website, www.fordright.co.nz, and I'll just spell that Fordright is one word, F-O-R-D-W-R-I-T-E. That is Fordright, as in my surname and so forth. So that is www.fordright.co.nz. I hope to perhaps publish some of my own views on my own writing website very soon. Excellent. You can call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802 where you can flip out or try to flip my position or tell me about your own 180 slash flip-flop story. That's 323-999-1802. I do love to hear your thoughts on the flip phone, especially if you are flipping out. It's very entertaining. And of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast, where I often post uh, sneak peeks of episodes and sound bites, etc. And please give the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do have a spare minute, just a brief minute to give the podcast a review, it really does help this podcast grow and expand and get into new territory and just generally make, make make the world better. Okay. And you can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, B-O-O-R-M-A-N, where I speak my mind on a variety of topics from a, a Christian and generally conservative worldview. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle. Lord, let me see who I am, what I need. Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. Who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle. Lord, let me see.